Well, good morning, everyone. Some of you have heard that, um, that I am been called to uh, a new ministry uh, context. And so um, as I stand today, today's the, the last time as a pastor in this church that I'll be preaching here. Well, Eric and I will be here next week um, for our final Sunday. And uh, I'm, I'm moving on to a leadership position which encompasses all of New England. I will be working with the Anglican Diocese of New England where I'd be, I'll be training pastors and coming alongside pastors and really pastoring pastors in that sense. And it's, it's, it's something I'm really excited about. Um, leadership is something I have an affinity towards that I just I love. And I don't know if you could see this. Do you know what, what, what birds these are? Quail. So you can say it loud. Come on now. Quail. It's quail. So if you go, if you're in, you're in California, which obviously that's where I'm from, um, I say it always and always, just so you guys remember, if you don't understand the language, it's because I come from a different country in California. Uh, um, and it's quail. So I love quail. Quail are my favorite birds. So I used to see a bunch of quail. This is a covey of quail. A covey of quail is like a family of, of quail. And they don't really fly. They, they're upland birds. They, they like to just kind of walk from shrub to shrub. But quail have a leader. And they, fo- they do this like follow the leader thing. And you'll see them all in a straight line. And like the leader will go out first to a shrub. And then he'll call to the other quail. And then the other quail will follow. And there's this, this sense in which leadership really matters. And all of us have have experienced good leadership, we've experienced bad leadership, we've exercised good leadership, and we've exercised bad leadership as well. And all of us, whether we know it or not, have a sphere of leadership God has called us on our front line. All of you, everyone in here has somebody they're in charge of, they're, uh, they're res- something they're responsible for. God has called you, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, you have kids, you have a household to manage, whether you're at your work, you have people, you have things, you have something that's within your sphere of leadership that you're called. And God has sent you there to redeem all things for Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we must remember we live by the standard of grace accomplished at the cross, which is meant to be lived out in the leadership context of our front line. That's what motivates us, the grace of Jesus Christ. And today's message is called Jeroboam, the standard of sinful leadership. And so we've been in the book of uh, Kings, and we've been starting to look at these kings and, and what they're all about. Pastor John talked about Solomon. And today we look at our next king, a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was on, uh, was on the, an official for Solomon. So as Solomon is, is leading the kingdom, things aren't going well because of the foreign influence from all the wives that he has. And um, Jeroboam is, is an official there. And the prophet um, Aijah comes and talks to him and says, I have a word from the Lord from you and has a prophecy. And he tells Jeroboam, listen, God is going to split the kingdom. He's going to give you 10 of the tribes in the north and the other two tribes is going to leave with, with the house of David and um, as long as you follow in my way, as long as you're obedient you're going to thrive, things are going to be great and so Jeroboam gets this he hears this and he freaks out a little bit because he knows if people find this out because he's still within Solomon's reign he's going to die, so he goes down to Egypt hangs out in Egypt for a while and then Solomon dies and Solomon's son Rehoboam takes the leadership Jeroboam comes back, leads a revolt, a rebellion, and so this, the kingdom splits. And to the north you have Israel, to the south you have Judah. 
Jeroboam in the north with ten tribes, Rehoboam in the south with two tribes. And after this rebellion, there's a, there's a, a ceasefire of sorts. There's somewhat of a, of a peace. And as we look into today's text, we see Jeroboam, a man who had great potential to lead in a calling from God, totally screws everything up and actually becomes the standard of sinful, disastrous leadership. And so today, today what we're going to do is we're going to do a little compare and contrast. We're going to look at Jeroboam's standard of leadership, and we're going to compare it to God's standard of leadership demonstrated at the cross of Christ. And as we do this, we're going to discover four requirements of faithful frontline leadership. So four requirements of faithful frontline leadership. So let me pray and ask God to just open us, open our hearts, and, and really uh, fill us. So, Father, we come to you and we entreat you by the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us the things that we do not know. Lord, challenge us this morning. Challenge us this morning. Lord, this is all for your glory and your honor. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we see is leadership on our front line requires faith, not fear. Faith, not fear. So... Like I said, a temporary peace had set in. So the kingdoms are split. A temporary peace had set in. And the people, they want to go worship now. But they want to go worship in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is in, Ju- Ju- uh, is in Judea. So Israel is on the north. Judah is in the south. But Jerusalem is in the south in Judea. And the people in Israel want to go down there to worship. In verse 26, Jeroboam. It says, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go and, and up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So Jeroboam is, 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 is a little wigged out. He's looking and he's saying, if people want to go worship, but if they go worship, if they go down there, they're going to connect um, David, they're going to remember the glory days and they're going to connect the kingdom with Rehoboam because Rehoboam is from the line of David and then they're going to come and they're going to revolt against me and then I'm going to die. And we see that Jeroboam totally forgets the promises of God. He totally forgets that and he tries to, um, he's worried about his security. He, he has this fear that sets in because he's so worried about his security. He's, he's worried that uh, the people are just going to turn their affections and he disregards what God says. And we see that fearful leadership forgets God's promises and leads to an over-obsession of pursuing our own security. We get over-obsessed. If we fear, we forget God's promises. We get totally obsessed with our security. And we think it's up to us. And we see this happening with Jeroboam. His fear was bigger than God. He'd abandoned God. He forgot God's promises. And God wasn't even uh, something he was thinking about. His fear was bigger than God. He'd made God very small. Instead of having this reverent fear of God, which exercises faith and trust in God, he, he feared the people. He feared the people. And instead of God being his security, his fear led him to pursue his own security. And this often happens to us. We pursue our own security. God becomes small and we take control. And when we operate in this fear, it has vertical and horizontal effects. It has our effects with our relationship with God because we make God so small. God isn't majestic. He isn't mysterious. He isn't you know, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign. He becomes small. He becomes something we can manipulate. And it has vertical effects because people aren't being led well on our front line. And we make bad decisions. 
And, and when, I, when, I, when I think about this, I can remember being the senior pastor at Tribes for Christ Community Church. I made a lot of decisions in fear. I was worried about people, um, how many people were going to come. I was worried about failure, if I was going to fail. I was, I was worried about a lot of things, and it manifested itself with um, changing Sunday mornings. All right, we're going to do this. No, now we're going to do that. It was last-minute decisions. It was all of these things, and the people suffered for it. And maybe that's something that you've experienced, where you operate in fear on your front line, and you start changing things up. You start screwing around with it, and, 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 and it has impacts vertically and horizontally. People are hurt by it, and your relationship with God feels distant. And so we compare this fearful leadership to the faithful leadership demonstrated on the cross. And we remember God's promises to us. We remember his promises to us that perfect love casts out fear. And we are perfectly loved by the Father in Christ. We listen to our Lord Jesus who tells us, have peace. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And in Christ, we overcome the world. We remember the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No amount of failure, no amount of bad decisions can separate us from the love of Christ. But when we exercise this kind of leadership, when we walk in faith, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us everything. Let's just get that on the floor right now. It it costs Christ everything. He followed in faith the will of the Father and it cost him everything. So leadership on your front line is costly. But I have to ask you, what would your front line look like if you led in the power of faith, not fear? What would it look like? Change, everything would be changed. So that's the first thing. The first requirement, that's the first requirement. The second requirement is leadership on our front line requires openness, not obscurity. So here's, here's the bind uh, Jeroboam's in. So we got the whole worship thing down. You know, people got to want to worship in Jerusalem. He's in, he's in the northern kingdom in Israel. And he's in a real political bind. This has nothing to do with worship of God. It has everything to do with politics. And he's sitting there and he's like, I'm in a political bind because I don't want to lose my kingdom. I don't want to lose the, 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 you know, what I have. And so he needs to maintain, he, there's two things that are competing here. He needs to maintain this, this covenant connection with the people in Israel. He needs to let them know that they are, in fact, the children of Abraham and the chosen people of God. And so, therefore, he needs to, he needs to allow them to worship in, in some way, shape, or form and remind them of that. But he can't lose his political power by them going down to Jerusalem. So what does he do? Well, instead of being open and transparent about what's happening and just saying, hey, listen, God has called me to this, and I'm your king, he's called me to this, and I'm, I'm leading you now. He, he, he obscures some things. Verse 28, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Does this sound a little familiar? He makes these golden calves. Now, I want to put a little context to this. Because you would think, oh, here we go. Here's the golden calves thing again. Didn't they learn their lesson? But at this point in time, actually there were golden calves all over the place. Because of the influence that Solomon allowed in the kingdom already from the foreign influence, there was already this, this, this mixture of religions, this synchronism that was going on, and there was golden calves all over the place. So sin had already, um, idolatry had already inculcated the whole, the whole thing. And so to them, golden calves really weren't idolatry because sin had been normalized. See, sin is introduced, then it's catalyzed, and then it becomes normalized. 
And so this is what happens. It's just a normal thing. So it doesn't have the effects that from us we go, oh, here we go. To them it's just like, oh, it's more calves, cool. He said to the, the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who, bought, who brought you out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? He repeats the same thing that Aaron says. The same thing that Aaron said when he introduced the golden calf. He says the same thing. No one calls on him because they've forgotten their past. And he also says this. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. What's happening here? Why is he saying that? Well, because, because people would have to walk further to go to Jerusalem. So what he does is he sets up a temple in Bethel, which is within his kingdom, but it's 22 miles closer than Jerusalem. So he's saying, hey, listen, let me make worship really convenient for you. You don't want to go, you, don't, you know what? You don't want to go 22 extra miles. That's way too far. You have to walk. You have to carry, you know, donkeys. Kids are crying. Hey, why don't you come 22 miles closer? I'll build a temple for you in Bethel. Easy day. So he totally appeals to this sense of convenience and convenience in worship. And so they're like, okay, sure. And it says he sets one up in Bethel and the other in Dan, which are the, the borders of his kingdom. And this thing became a sin, meaning that people worship there. And offered false worship. The people came to worship the one at Bethel as far as Dan to worship the other. And so we see that leadership that is willing to obscure is willing to manipulate the affections of the people. That's what happens. He's totally manipulating the affections of the people. He's manipulating the fact of their, 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 they have this idolatry of convenience. Like convenience really matters to them. So let me offer something very convenient to them. That's even though it's totally not of God. And let me go ahead and, and manipulate the heart a bit. Because they already have a propensity for idolatry. Which if we read our Old Testament, we see that that's what, um, what the children of Israel always dealt with. So he's like, I'm just going to take advantage of this. I'm going to manipulate the people's affections for political gain. And so we see that, and he uses their ignorance of Scripture as well. I mean, he even repeats what Aaron says, and no one calls him on it. So we compare this obscurity to the openness demonstrated on the cross, and we remember that Jesus, Jesus at the cross exposes the darkness to light. He exposes the darkness to light. He is the light of the world, exposing the obscurity of the darkness to the openness of the light. As his disciples, we are light bearers, meant to bring forth the openness of Christ, meant to, to, to confront the obscurity of darkness on our front line. But again, there's a cost. And for, for Christ, it looked like it was game over, but it wasn't. And he walks into this, and we see that the world did not receive him. He didn't recognize him. He was rejected. And we can expect that when we expose things in the darkness to the, to, to the light. It's going to happen. We're, there's going to be a level of rejection here on our front line. And it's going to seem as there's a game over. But the game isn't over. It's just begun. And it changes everything, right? The cross of Christ changes everything. And we're called into our front line to bring openness and expose the darkness to the light to change everything. And there's something about openness that just brings this refreshment. I can remember the first time I saw a military officer really um, just bring an openness. It was when I was in Iraq. It was this colonel, I don't remember his name. I remember his face. 
and we were take, you know, we were getting, I was at the force reconnaissance platoon and he sat us down and he said, listen, this is right around Fallujah, time of Fallujah. He says, listen, things are really bad. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm going to do my best to support you, but some of you are not coming home. And that was sobering, but there was openness there. And I, I could then kind of go from there, right? We could go from there because it's open. So how can you bring openness to your front line? There's things that you know that you're harboring. How can you bring openness? How can you shed the light of Christ on these things? So that's the second requirement. The third requirement is leadership on our front line requires courage, not compromise. So at this point, Jeroboam has totally abandoned God. He's turned his back on God. He's led the people to sin, not just individual sin, but national sin. Like there's national sin going on here. But now he goes even further and he reinforces his political agenda by setting up a false religious system. Verse 31, Jeroboam built shrines on high places. So there was these high places. And so what Jeroboam does is he says, all right, I built these two temples in Bethel and Dan, but now I want to go ahead and we're going to have like this local congregation, this local expression of uh, idol worship. And so these high places, he built these little mini temples. And what it did is it allowed the people to kind of offer their local flair of, of idol worship. So he's, again, playing to the people. He's like, oh, here, I'll give you your own little mini temple. So all these little uh, high places are set up. And then what does he do? He appoints priests from all sorts of people. He just starts appointing people priests, not from the, the tribe of, of, of Levi, totally not priests of the Lord. He just starts appointing people to this false religion as false priests. It says in thir- verse 32, he instituted festivals on the 15th day in the 8th month, like the festivals held in Judah. So what he does is he takes these festivals that are happening in, Ju- in, in Judah, and he kind of replicates it for his own, um, to build his own false religious system. And then here's the thing. He, he can't even just leave it there. He goes and he, he offers, him, he himself offers sacrifices on the altar. He appoints himself as a priest. So this false king who cared nothing, cared, cared less about the prophecy of, of God and what God had called him to do, promotes himself to priests. And here a man who was called to stand courageously, stand courageously for the things of God, totally compromises everything for himself, for his political gain. And here's the thing, compromised leadership is willing to compromise core values on the altar of pragmatism every day. Every day. Compromised leadership will always just disregard because values are, you know, they're squishy. They're not, they're not real. They're, they're kind of whatever makes sense to me in, in, in a pragmatic way. But that's not true leadership and that's not godly leadership. And I can remember, um, I can remember being a, a young Marine and we would get these second lieutenants in. Now, I don't know if you know about anything about second lieutenants, but they, they, they spend four years in college playing beer pong and then they come out and they're... <laughs> And, and they're, they're given these, these golden bars and they want to tell you how life is supposed to be. And you're like, give me a break here, man. I've just been living this life. And so, so the second lieutenant we had was, he's a 22-year-old. What do, you, what do you expect, right? And so I go to one of my senior leaders. I'm like, this guy is horrible. But in, in Marine Corps fashion, um, the staff sergeant says, well, 
If you're, you have a complaint, you better have a solution for it. If you have a complaint, what's your solution? What are you going to do about it? And you see, we often do this in our lives. We, we point out leaders and we, and, and we say, where are the people that are going to stand for God? Who are, where are the people that are going to have courage in our time? Who are those people? And we start pointing our fingers to everyone. And then we go and we look at, at someone who is in leadership and we go, that leader is horrible. And we point our fingers and we, we don't have really have the solution. And here's the solution. The solution is you. You've been placed on your front line to stand for the things of God, to show courage for God on your front line, wherever that is. You're not there by accidents. So you're the solution. You thought you were getting off easy today, right? <laughs> so we compare this compromised leadership to the courageous leadership demonstrated at the cross. And we remember that courageous leadership requires vulnerability. You've got to walk in there. It's scary. And it's never willing to compromise core values. Because our prophet, priest, and king, our Lord Jesus, led courageously by carrying his cross. Literally carrying his cross. Being vulnerable and stretching out his hands in the hardwood of the cross to uphold the core values of glorifying the Father and reconciling all things unto himself. So my question to you is, what does, it, what does leading with courage look like to you on your front line? What does that look like? So that's the third requirement. The final requirement. Leadership on our front line requires self-awareness, not self-protection. So how does God respond to all this? Let's see. We, we jump to chapter 14. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. He's, this is what he's saying to, to uh, the Jeroboam. I raised you up from among, among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all of his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. That should give you chills. You never want to hear those words from God. You aroused my anger and, and you, you turned your back on me. We have a God that loves us, we often think of God as kind of this fluffy grandfatherly figure in the sky, ready to kind of, you know, reach out to us. And he absolutely loves us with an everlasting love. But make no mind, our God is a God of justice. And we thank God for that. Because we think, th see things in the world and we're like, God, do something about it, please. And we see here that his, his anger is aroused by Jeroboam. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Rehoboam. First, I will cut off from Jeroboam, every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'm going to wipe out your ancestry. It's done. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. God doesn't mess around with words, by the way. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who died in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. Why is God so angry here? God is so angry because Jeroboam's leadership was so much about himself, he was so worried about self-protection, that he, he led the people astray, and these people offered false worship, because God cares about how he's worshipped, especially in our everyday. 
And they weren't even, they weren't even worshiping God in any sense of the word. And so he's, he's, he's extremely, the, 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 the sphere of leadership in which you're given, the judgment will be that much harsher for not carrying it out as God has called you to carry it out. That's, we see that over and over again in scripture. So this self-protection that Jeroboam, Jeroboam was so worried about building his own kingdom and protecting himself that he, he sacrificed self-awareness. Self-awareness in relation to God. Who am I in relation to God? What has God called me to? And self-awareness is, is key in leading in our front lines. We have to be self-aware in relation to God. It's never about us. It's about Christ and for the sake of the other. You're not there for you. You're there for Christ and for the sake of the other. And when we compare the self-protection of Jeroboam to the self-awareness of Christ on the cross, we remember one key thing. One key thing when we compare the two. That we are all Jeroboam. We are all Jeroboam. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Apart from Christ, we are all Jeroboam. We deserve the wrath that God just spoke of Jeroboam. We deserve it. But God doesn't give us that. Instead, he sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect and righteous life. And he's nailed to a cross. And three days later, he's resurrected. And we put our faith and trust in him. We, are, we too are resurrected to new life. And God sees us uh, with the righteousness of Christ. No matter what we do, we now have the grace. Grace is poured on to us in Christ. But that's not it. Because God is doing a recreative thing right now. He's reconciling all things unto him. And on our front line, we've been called to co-create with God on our front line. You see, our leadership will always be deficient if it doesn't flow from the grace brought forth by the cross. It's got to flow from the, from the cross, the grace that we received in Christ. And friends, I'm going to ask Fernando to come up here. Where are you at, Fernando? Stop playing. Stop sitting in different places. <laughs> Listen, we need to pray about this. My prayer is that you were sitting in your seat and you were squirming because I was squirming given this. And this time tomorrow, you will have the opportunity to leave, lead on your front line. It's a time to embrace this calling and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit by the standard of grace that we have been given at the cross and that we now offer to others. So we need to pray. We need to ask God for God's power. We need to confess. We need to do all these things. And we need to just come forth to God right now. And I want to I offer this time to just pray. I'm going to have some prayer prompts. I'm going to ask you to just listen and to participate. Let's just come before God as his people open before him. So let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone on our front line and our every day might come within the reach of your saving embrace. At this time, just where you're sitting right now, in the stillness of your own heart, confess to our Lord those times that you have led in fear, you've compromised, you've worried, you've obscured things, or perhaps you are worried about your own self-protection. Just silently confess those things to, to the Lord. He is merciful.
Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone on our front line and our everyday might come within the reach of your saving embrace. At this time, I want you to just put your palms up as if you're asking God and, and waiting to receive. And I just want you to quietly, just what do you need from God? Do you need more boldness? Do you need more power? Do you need more wisdom? Just, just proclaim that out to God right now with your palms up, asking, waiting to receive from God because he is a good God. Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love in the hardwood of the cross that everyone on our front line and our everyday might come within the reach of your saving embrace. Put your hands together. And it's at this time, let us just proclaim those names. Let us just shout those names of people and places on your front line that need transformation. So just shout them out. He's hearing, just shout it out. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone on our front line and our everyday might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love and leading with compassion, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor and glory of your holy name. Amen.